Can we make that bridge of that song our prayer as we come to his word today? Father, all our hope is in you. All. All our hope is in you. So all glory to you, the light of the world. We won't know you unless you have revealed yourself. We would not We would not know who you are. We would not know how you provided for us in Christ unless you had revealed yourself. We would be guessing right now. We would be grasping in the dark, but you have brought us into the light. And so for those of us who are saved by your grace through faith in Jesus, we come to your word and we know that we need the words of life. For those who may be here or may be watching who do not know Jesus as Lord, or today they need words of life. And our only hope is you. All our hope is in you, Lord. So help our hope become a reality today. That we would know you, that we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would serve you, that we would obey you and follow you, treasure you above all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 19. So we jump back into our series in the book of Numbers, just so those who may have started coming or maybe visiting with us started coming during Christmas season. Our traditional way of doing things is we're working our way through the Bible. So we started in Genesis and we're working our way through um, and we're in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, working book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And I want to remind us for just a moment as we're jumping back in of why we're looking at these ancient stories, why it's important, why we deal with some seemingly very odd, some weird, some really removed from our everyday (laughs) mentality and way of doing life, why we would deal with this, all these precepts and laws and sacrifices. Why are we looking at this? And the answer lies in the fact Not just that we believe, as the video said, that God's word is perfect and authoritative and sufficient and profitable for us. We believe that. But the New Testament actually tells us we need these stories. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of these wilderness stories of God's presence in the wilderness among his people and how the people rebelled and what the people did and the sacrifices. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now these things happened to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction. They were written down so that we would know and so that we would be instructed on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is literally saying, you need these stories because you think you're strong and you're not. He's literally saying, you need these stories because their problems were your problems. You need these stories because temptation is coming and is at the door. And you need to know how God has always provided for his people. So with that truth in place, I want us to look at Numbers 19 together. And just so that we have a little bit of understanding of the book of Numbers and where we are, remember the people are in transit between having been in slavery in Egypt and going to the promised land. They've been delivered by God, ransomed by God, bought. They've been paid for. They are now his. They're in the middle of the wilderness. His law has been given to them. He's given them a sacrificial system. He's had a tabernacle built so that he could dwell among his people. And they're on their way to the promised land, and they've shown up once and turned their back, right? 
And now they're in this position where kind of death is reigning all around them. And they have to deal with the reality of the fact that an entire generation is going to die in the wilderness. They have to deal with that fact. And they don't like that fact, as you can imagine. And they're not keen on the idea of an entire generation dying off. And so rebellion has just become the norm for the people. They're constantly rebelling against leadership and against God. And in rebellion... The recent rebellion was put down by God where 14,700 people died in a single day. And then right after that, God establishes, reestablishes, hey, my priests and my Levites are the way. They're the people that I'm using to model my care for my people. They're my leaders. They're the ones who will draw people into my presence. They're the ones who will prepare the way for people to come and worship me. I am a holy God. You're an unholy people. I, we need a way for you to come and worship me and so I can dwell among you. And so the people are divided up into three types of people. There's the priests. There's the Levites who take care of the tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And then there's the people, the congregation. And so God gives in chapter 18 some ways that the Levites need to be purified and prepared and ready to serve and how, what their jobs are. And then in verse chapter 19, it stands to reason then that he would come to the purification of the congregation, of the people themselves. And so we get in chapter 19 this very weird... Odd, strange, out of the ordinary sequence that God calls his people to uh, a, a purifying ritual for all of God's people so that they can be pure before him in worship. It is weird. It, it is different than anything we have ever experienced in our lives guaranteed. But I believe that there is really an everyday, like literally everyday application for us. Not a once-a-year application, not a sometimes application, but an everyday, every moment of the day application for us found in this story. So if you would just follow along with me in Numbers chapter 19 as I read, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. So this is a heifer that's never been worked. Right? It's never been in the field working. It's never been yoked up so that it's uh, hauling a cart. None of this has happened, and it has to be perfect. Verse 3, and you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it should be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin its flesh and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterward he may come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. Let's pause right there. What's he saying? You're going to burn the thing down to ashes. And those ashes are going to be used to mix with water later to be used in purification rites. Everybody following? 
So the ashes are going to be stored and they're going to be mixed with water later for purification rites. Verse 10, and the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean with the water. That's the water with the ashes in it. Everybody following now? So there's going to be a problem that everybody's got to deal with, and God's giving a solution to the problem. It says, but if he does not clean himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, verse 13, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever is in the open field touches someone who is killed with a sword or who dies naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering of fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave and the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse him and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and at evening he shall be clean if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the lord because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him he is unclean and it shall be a statute forever for them the one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. And the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. That's a lot of unclean. <laughs> right? So you've got a whole lot of unclean and a whole lot of death. Everybody following? Pretty straightforward. There's a real problem that needs a real solution. Why all the talk about death? Now, obviously, there's two sections to this passage. You caught that, right? Verses 1 through 10 are all about this sacrifice of the red heifer, this ritual of the red heifer being burned down to ash. And the rest of the chapter is why. The rest of the chapter is what that's going to be used for and, and why God would prescribe that, what the need of the people is. And the need of the people is very important. It's very essential. And it's something that I think we can relate to. And it's this, there is this sense that there's where the kingdom of heaven and life, the kingdom of life, intersects with the kingdom of this world full of death and decay. It's at that intersection where this ritual meets. Okay, let's put it another way. Death is everywhere. And death is a reminder of sin. Death is everywhere, and wherever there's death, it's a reminder that sin reigns. That sin rules, that we live in a world under a curse of sin and death. So you have to put yourself in their, uh, in their place. Okay, so here's the thing. They've been told this entire generation is going to die in the wilderness. They probably need to know what to do when they come across a dead body. Because they've already been told impurity, you can't come worship the Lord. 
Just recently, a couple of chapters ago, 14,700 people died in a day. They probably need to know how to deal with death. Death was all around them. It was going to be all around them. This is what they needed to do. So this is actually a very pastoral passage in the sense that God is dealing with a real problem and a real issue, real questions that the people would have. How, how can we follow, be following a God who's the God of life with all this death around us? How can we worship the incorruptible God when all of this decay is happening all around us? How do we deal with the unclean? How do we deal with the uncleanliness of our own lives? And it's here where God's word meets his people. Right there in the wilderness, right there in the middle of their need. Teaching his people that death is a reminder of the nature of sin. And of the requirements for God's people for worship. So let me put it another way that might help. Okay, Death and judgment contaminate all of life. Because the world exists under the curse of sin and death. This is not something we can escape. So it was going to be a natural occurrence that they would run into death and decay and uncleanliness. Some of the death the people would come in contact with was natural. A loved one dying in his tent. Of course you're going to go in. Of course you're going to be there with the family. All the food and open containers becoming unclean and contaminated. I mean, you got to assume that with this large of a crowd, this was happening not just every day, but multiple times a day throughout the camp, right? They were having to deal with this all the time. Maybe somebody died in a battle or because of manslaughter or murder in a field by a sword, by accident. Whatever the case, death was prevalent and the people needed to know how to navigate but, but I want you to see that the purpose is not just to talk about death. And the purpose isn't just what do you do with a dead body. That's not the purpose of the passage. The purpose of the passage is to provide a way for God's people to remain in right relationship with God and be able to worship him. God's desire was to dwell among his people. God's desire was to have a relationship with his people. God's desire was to fellowship with his people. God's desire was to be their God and them to be his people. God's desire was oneness in that way. And so he needs to provide a way for the people to have that. This is, this is what Isaiah 64 tells us, is that everybody is unclean. Isaiah 64 says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I want you to think of that phrase, take us away, because that's the real danger. God's concern is that we would be taken away from worship. God's concern is that his people, through the daily grind of impurity and decay around them, would be taken away from right worship of God. Verse 13 tells this very plainly. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off, taken away. From Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. God is telling his people, you can't worship me rightly if you're unclean. You can't worship me rightly if you're impure. You can't worship me rightly if you are not holy. You are meant to be holy and set apart. Sin and impurity separate people from God and from proper worship. 
God's concern here is not just so that people will be clean around the camp. It's not just a concern about are we going to spread disease or we need proper hygienic you know, policies around camp. I'm sure that was a real concern. You can't get like four teenagers in a basement and not be concerned about that. So I can't imagine this number of people in a camp. No, his concern is how? How do we have a right relationship with God? Because It's this concern. Because God is holy, God's people can only properly worship him in holiness. Because God is holy, God's people can only properly worship him in holiness. So let's just dive into this for just a few minutes. A couple of questions that I think would pop up, right? And this is it. You, you, I don't know how you walked in here today, but I walk in every Sunday with baggage. Anybody else? I walk in with my week following me, right? I walk in with my morning following me. My mornings, I don't have much of a morning on before I get here on Sunday mornings, but I walk in with my morning following me, right? I walk in with my cares and my trials and my concerns and the, my thoughts and my worries, and my, right? Don't you? You walk in with those things and maybe you walk in with impure thoughts. Maybe you walk in with your failures this week. Maybe you, maybe you walk in with your sin of the week. Maybe you walk in in that way and you're like, how could I ever worship God? And the song starts and you start singing and you're going just singing the words going, do I even believe this? Do I even, anybody ever feel this way? How do we deal with that? Because if we sin every day, can we ever be clean enough to worship God properly? That seems to be the question, right? The question here is, they're going to run into all this impurity every day. And God's saying, and if you don't get clean, you can't come worship. How how can I stay clean? How can I stay clean enough to worship God? If all of life is lived in a world that's under a curse of sin and death, and we come in contact with this uncleanness, this impurity every day, how can we ever have a right relationship with God? How can we ever worship him rightly? I think that's the essence of the whole first 10 verses of this passage. It's to tell us, to give us this hope, to give us this truth that God alone provides the way for his people to be pure and holy worshipers. You can't become a pure and holy worshiper unless God provides the way. God alone provides the way for his people to be pure and holy worshipers. This is what the prescription of the red heifer is. That everyday people who are plagued by everyday impurities would be made clean, would be made holy, would become worshipers of the pure and holy God. And it's in this one ritual, this one magnificent, weird, colored red ritual that we have a picture for God's people to have hope. So, before we jump in, I want to just let you know, this is one of those moments I liken the red heifer to WebMD. Okay, and this is going to make sense in a second, right? I, I, if you go Google all the things about the red heifer, you're going to get real confused real quick. Kind of like when you have a pain in your side and you're like, what could it be? So you go to WebMD and you look pain inside. And you're like, oh my word, I'm dying. All right, Anybody? Right? This is what happens. So I'm telling you, treat this like WebMD. Don't go Google Red Heifer. Because here's what you're going to find. 
There are red heifers that have been sent, pure, spotless red heifers that have been sent from the U.S. to Israel because the end of the world is coming. Okay, well, that, just so you know, that video cycles through about every three years. Just so, just so you know, that's, that video cycles through every three years. And, and people are telling you there's red heifers that are being sent over because this is what's necessary in order. Okay, no sacrifices have been happening at the Temple Mount for quite some time because there's no temple. So I want to make sure we understand this. Okay, so this isn't, I don't think that the best application of this passage is for end times prophecy. I think just like every other sacrifice in every law of God, the New Testament bears out very plainly that the fulfillment of this is found in Jesus. Not in end times prophecy, but in Jesus. And so what I want us to do is I want us to actually go to the New Testament and let the New Testament inform and interpret what's happening here in this weird scene in Numbers 19. Because if we look at this through... 21st century eyes, we're just going to be confused. We're going to run in all kinds of different directions. We look at it through God's eyes and his revealed word in the New Testament. I think we're going to be on better footing as we learn that God alone provides the way for his people to be pure and holy worshipers. So let's look at this for just a second. There are all kinds of unique elements to this sacrifice, such as the fact that in every other sacrifice, a bull would have been used. Did you catch that? This is a heifer. This is a cow. Not a bull. This is a heifer, a cow of red color. I mean, the red color is everywhere. It's of the heifer, of the cedar wood, of the scarlet yarn. I don't want us to try to read too much into these elements. I want us to actually see that the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment. And, and there's actually... You may say, okay, well, you're still going to look at all the symbolism. Yes, but I'm going to look first at a verse that actually tells me that Jesus is the fulfillment of this red heifer. And you're like, Brad, where is that in the Bible? I'm going to tell you. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us we don't have to look to end times prophecy. We can actually look at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls, and you're like, okay, we heard about all those sacrifices. What's the next phrase? And the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Sound familiar? Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You want to see the fulfillment of the red heifer? You want to interpret the red heifer? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, because how much more will his blood accomplish this purpose? So whatever the red heifer was meant to accomplish, Jesus does it better. We all on the same page? Whatever the red heifer and his ashes, or her her ashes, sorry, whatever the red heifer and her ashes were meant to accomplish, Jesus does better. So let's look at a few insights. I mean, the first is even there in Hebrews chapter 9. It says the sacrifice must be without blemish, and Jesus is our sacrifice without sin or imperfection. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us how much more the blood of Christ, he offered himself without blemish to God. The red heifer couldn't have blemish, could never have been worked, never yoked. And the sacrifice had to be without blemish, and Jesus fulfills that. Jesus was offered without blemish to God, the holy for the unholy, the pure for the impure, the spotless lamb, the holy son of God for us. 
The second truth we see is the sacrifice takes place outside the camp, which is actually really interesting because all of the other sacrifices took place. You start by slaughtering the animal at the entrance to the tent of meeting, right? And then you go into the courtyard and there's the altar and there's the, the meat is sectioned up and portions here, portions here, all the blood drained out, blood splattered everywhere, and then the meat is burned uh, on the altar. That doesn't happen here. This sacrifice takes place outside the camp. Look at verse 3. It says, you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. All of the ashes will be stored outside the camp. The sacrifice outside the camp. What do we, what do, we do with that? What, what, what's, what's the point here? Well, the point is that Jesus fulfills this. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate, outside the camp. He suffered there in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We have a Savior who was sinless, pure, without blemish, who was then beaten, who was then mocked, who was then taken as a curse outside the camp, outside the city, put on a cross. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrifice for us. Did you catch that the sacrifice is all about blood? And I think that's pretty simple. Like the only reason everything would be red, right? From the scarlet yarn to the, right, to the cedar wood, to the heifer herself, is to represent the blood. Verse 5, the heifer shall be burned and in his sight, its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. See, all the other sacrifices, the blood was drained and then used to splatter in certain places. The only blood that splattered here is the seven times finger dipping, right? Did you catch that? Instead, all the blood now is going into the ashes. It's going to be burned up into ash. Why? Because... The ashes are where the, where the effect of this sacrifice is going to be found. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There'd be no cleanliness. There'd be no cleansing power in the ashes without the blood. And so the blood is signified here in the same way that we are purchased, redeemed, ransomed. Just, just keep going with all that Jesus has done by his blood, accomplished for us, cleansed washed, all done, all purposed by the blood. Verses 10 through 19 show us how people were commanded to administer the ritual for cleaning because there's another element. It's not just the blood. There's actually another element that meets with all that's happened in the ashes and the blood, and it's this. It's faith. Because I'm going to tell you, it takes a lot of faith to believe I'm unclean, so take ash water and throw it on me and I'll be clean. Anybody else here thinking throwing ash water on somebody makes them clean? That, that doesn't seem to compute, does it? So what does it take? It takes faith. It takes the, the faith to come and say, I, I, touched the, I touched the body. I'm unclean. 
It'd be a lot easier to just kind of let it go, right? Go quarantine yourself for seven days. But it takes faith to come and say, God is the one who has prescribed how I can be clean. I want to be a worshiper of God because I believe that he is good and I want to honor him. I want to worship him. So I want to be a part of that. So wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Wash me, make me clean. It takes faith to do that. The sacrifice and ritual is for all people who by faith receive it. Did you catch who this statute is for? We're actually told that the statute is not just, in verse 10, the statute is not just for the Israelite, but the statute is for anyone who's sojourning there as well. Any stranger who's coming in, anyone who wants to honor the Lord by faith, any worshiper of God by faith, the sacrifice and ritual is for all people who by faith receive it. But we also see that the ritual can only be administered by a clean person. Only a ritually clean person can administer the ritual. Only the holy can make someone holy. Only the clean can administer what is needed to make us clean. Look at verse 9. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. So only the clean person could do that. Verse 18, Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touches touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. Only a clean person can administer what's needed to make someone clean. We, we know this. Let me put it this way. We know this in marriage and in parenting. I think there's so many lessons we can learn in marriage and in parenting. Let me, let me give you one. You can't fix people, can you? Because the thing that bothers you the most about most people is the problem is usually the thing that's worst about you. You ever notice that? can't fix people, can you? Because you yourself have problems. We can't fix our kids. So what annoys us about our kids is the same thing I did when I was a kid. can't fix my spouse because as soon as I start picking on the thing that needs to be fixed, I'm becoming the exact problem that I say I don't like. Right? I can't fix anybody because only the clean can make someone clean. Only the righteous can make someone righteous. Only the holy can make someone holy. And it's this instance, only the clean person can administer that which is necessary, the requirement in order to be clean. And it is Jesus. It's in Jesus that this requirement is once for all fulfilled. We don't need to go find clean people to change people. We don't need to go find clean people to administer the ritual. We don't need to find clean people to fix people. We have Jesus. Jesus who is pure. Jesus who is holy. Jesus is the one without blemish. He's the high priest who is on our side, who is also innocent. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he is able to administer all that's necessary for our cleanliness because he himself is holy. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Our Savior is undefiled and sinless. Isn't it good news that we don't have to go find people to fix people because we have, we have a Savior who makes people new? Next thing I want you to see is the sacrifice and the ritual makes the clean person unclean. 
So you have to have a clean person in order to make unclean people clean. But you, in the meantime, what happens is the clean person becomes unclean by administering the ritual. Did you catch that? And it's costly to those who administer it. All those who take part in the work of purifying the people are contaminated themselves. Verse 7, it's the priest as he's just watching the heifer burn. The priest becomes unclean. And the guy who tends the fire, verse 8, he's unclean. Verse 10, the one who gathers up the ashes becomes unclean. What do we do with this? Well, I believe there is a fulfillment here in Jesus that is both beautiful and profound and actually is at the root of the whole gospel for us and why we know we are forgiven and why we know God is just and full of grace, that he's fair that he punishes sin and that he's full of grace, that we can trust that Jesus is for our purity and our cleansing and our forgiveness. It's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took on our impurity to make us pure. He took on our sin to make us holy. He took our place so that we might have his righteousness. But but in this, there's an even greater reality. It's not just that Jesus took our place and took our sin. It's the fact that in taking our sin, he still didn't become a sinner. <laughs> That's the good news we have, is that today we have a holy and blameless Savior. Not just at the cross, but today we have a holy and blameless Savior, one who can administer everything necessary to make us clean. It's the way Ligon Duncan put it. Though he absorbs our sin, though he bears our sin, though he bears our punishment and our guilt, he is unblemished. It's Jesus who could be touched by the unclean woman with the issue of blood, which should have made him unclean, but instead he healed her. It's Jesus who could walk up to a leper and touch the dead skin of a leper, and instead of being unclean, being made unclean, he would make the leper clean. It's Jesus who could go into the room of the little girl who had died and hover over her bed, which should have made him unclean for seven days. Instead, brings her back to life. That's our Savior. That's the fulfillment. We need a clean person to administer everything necessary to make us clean. And he says... I am the one. No death can defile me because I've conquered death. This is our Savior. This is the fulfillment for us, sprinkling us clean while remaining pure himself. The one interesting thing that you might see about this is that the sacrifice has future cleansing purposes and effectiveness. Which is unusual because every sacrifice up to this point has been a sacrifice dealing with a past sin, right? Everything has been, if someone sins, then they need to do this. If someone is impure, they need to do this. This is like, hey, let's kill the heifer, burn the heifer to ash, store the ashes so that in the future, when you are impure, we have something to take care of it. That's odd. That's weird. Right? Because it doesn't fit with the rest of the narrative. It's not just the present only. But isn't it good news that we have a sacrifice that was made once 
It's not just for all people, but for all time. A sacrifice that cleanses, redeems, forgives, purchases us for God, but also washes us, sprinkles us clean, brings us into right fellowship with God. This, I believe, is what Jesus was teaching the night before his death, the night before he would take the cross for us once and for all, like the heifer being burned, okay? Like that sacrifice. He was going to take that once for all, and he gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he shared a meal with them. But before he shared the meal with them, what did he do? Do you remember what he did? He washed their feet. And as he washes their feet... In John chapter 13, as he washes their feet, as he washes off the defilement, the everyday muck from their life that they had run into as they're coming into the room in their, in their sandals, they take off their sandals and they get dirt on their feet, and he gets down on his hands and knees and he starts washing off the daily grind, the daily defilement, the reality that anytime we see something broken, we can say, that's not the way God created this world. That's sin. Every time we see decay, we can say, that's not the way God created this world. That's because of sin and the curse of sin and death. You're walking around in the muck of life. You come into the room and Jesus starts cleaning off your feet. And and, and Peter says, why are you cleaning my feet? And Jesus says, you won't get it now, but you'll get it soon. And then in verse 8, Peter says, to Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. That's a bold statement. But what he's saying is, I should be serving you, not the other way around. Jesus' response is this. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Let me put it another way. If I don't wash you, you're cut off. Does that sound familiar? If I don't wash you, you go away. You're taken away. If I don't wash you, So, of course, Simon Peter in verse 9 says, Lord, then not just my feet, but my hands and my my head also. Like, pour the water over me. Like, do what you got to do. Wash me completely. In verse 10, Jesus says, the one who has bathed, you can almost hear him go, oh, Peter. (laughs) Right? says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Let me, let me put this another way. Old Testament, you are my holy people because I have redeemed you out of Egypt. You are mine to worship me, yet you are impure, defiled by this world. Come to me. I will provide for how you will be made clean. New Testament. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are holy if you are part of his kingdom, if you are one of his children. Yet, you have passions of the flesh, desires of the heart. These sins that so easily entangle you, the things that you can't seem to shake off. And he says, come to me and I'll sprinkle you clean. I will wash you clean. Because of what I've done once for all, it applies to today too, and tomorrow, and the next day. We will daily come in contact with the sin and defilement that easily entangles us. And our, our need is going to be the same every day. 
to be made clean. So how do we do that? How does that happen? Isn't it good news that just like God provided a heifer and ashes in the past, he's provided a savior today and he provides the prescription for us. And so as we get ready to close here in just a moment, I want to give you two applications, two applications that I think have to be brought out of this. And the first is this. Believers in Jesus confess our sins and find forgiveness and cleansing. Because we have a once-for-all Savior, we trust that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is what 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's going to cleanse the impurity. He's going to cleanse the unrighteousness. He's going to take the daily stuff off too. And in the same way you came to Jesus and said, take my sin and my sinfulness. I'm yours. I belong to you. I trust you because of the death of Christ on the cross. I trust you in the same way you come to him every day and say, I want to stop. I can't stop. I want to stop. Wash me. I didn't stop. Wash me. (laughs) I want to trust. I'm not trusting. Wash me. Come to him. Confess your sin. Don't act like it's not sin. It's like I tell people all the time. When people come to me and they're like, oh, well, that's just, that's just how I am. Never going to change. I'm like, why don't you just call it what it is, sin, because Jesus deals with sin. Don't make it your personality because Jesus doesn't change personalities. He, he forgives sin. Let, let's call it sin and let Jesus deal with it. Because he's saying, confess, confess your sin, confess your need and find forgiveness and cleansing. All of that can be found in Jesus, who is so pure, so holy, that he paid the price and remained holy and blameless and perfect. So he can keep cleansing you. You go back to him, and the second is this. Draw near. Stop running away. Draw near. If you believe that your sins can be forgiven and have been forgiven in Christ, draw near. Don't run. Draw near pleading Jesus. Don't plead your goodness. Don't plead how much better you are than last week. Don't plead your sacrifice. Don't plead anything other than his goodness and his sacrifice. It's in pleading Jesus that not only our feet or our hands are washed, not just our guilt is taken away, It's in drawing near by faith in Jesus as our sacrifice and as our cleansing flood that we actually find that he doesn't just cause us to to believe that we are washed clean. He makes us feel like we're washed clean. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You know you carry those sins around, and when you give them to Jesus, you still feel guilty for them, don't you? You still feel the condemnation. He's saying, I can take that too. I can take the condemnation too. So come to me. Draw near in faith that he can and he will. See, one day everybody, every single human being will stand before God, their creator and judge of all creation. And everyone's going to make a plea before the judge. And innocent is not a choice. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have gone our own way so many times we can't even number, right? Can we just admit that? Innocent, not an, not an option for our plea when we come before the judge. 
And if you, if you plead guilty, you're saying, I know I'm a sinner. I'm just choosing to reject the offer of the sacrifice of Jesus. So the only hope you have when you have to make that plea is to plead Jesus. Is as Ian DeGuid wrote, we can say to God, Lord God, I committed all those sins. They're all mine. The death that they deserve is mine. But your holy son, Jesus, has paid for every one of them. The payment for all of all of them is death, but he paid it all when he died on the cross. He took my defilement on himself, and so now I am clean before you. It's the only plea with hope. And now we can know we are forgiven, redeemed. And we can not just know it, we can feel it. We can live it, forgiven and redeemed, cleansed by the blood of a perfect sacrifice who remains perfect and holy though he continues to draw near to those of us who are defiled and sinful. What good news that is. That our Savior keeps drawing us near so that we can be made clean. Father, I pray that we would trust Jesus and the cleansing flow that comes from him, washing us whiter than snow, making us new creations. Make us those who trust him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing of that cleansing flow, of the good news of Jesus' blood that cleanses us from all our unrighteousness.